replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. Our passage divides into two sections. The first, in verses 25 to 28, gives us two marks of those who will inherit eternal life. Verse 25 tells us that an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. We know that from early in his ministry, the Pharisees and teachers of the law have been working to compile a case against Jesus. And here this expert in the law is trying to add to his file on Jesus. He wants him to say something that can be used against him. The lawyer's question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer he would be expecting is, keep the law. This man is not asking because he's searching for the truth. He's asking to test Jesus. Is Jesus going to give the right answer as he sees it? But Jesus doesn't give any answer. Instead, as he so often does, he responds with another question. In verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You claim to be an expert in the law, Jesus says, so you tell me. And the man responds with this highly insightful summary of the law. 
In verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. These are often known as the two greatest commandments. The first is taken from the book of Deuteronomy and the second from Leviticus. That passage in Leviticus was read for us earlier. This expert in the law says it all boils down to this. And notice that Jesus agrees with him in verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So then, here we have two marks of those who will inherit eternal life. They love God and they love their neighbor. Someone has summed it up by saying, love God, love others, nothing else matters. Now that's a catchy way to remember it, but let's not miss what's involved. First of all, look at what's involved in loving God. We're to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. That's total love. It's love that involves the totality of our being. Our affections, our ambitions, our thinking and energy are all to be given over to loving God. And loving our neighbor involves loving him or her as ourselves. Again, this is not token love. It's total love. The lawyer has given a great answer. But in verse 28, Jesus adds a challenge. Do this and you will live. In other words, knowing the right answer is not enough. We have to put our knowledge into practice. And as we'll see, that's where the lawyer has a problem. It's generally where we have a problem too. But before we move on, let's remember the lawyer's initial question in verse 25. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And with that in mind, the order of these two greatest commandments is very important. Love of God comes first. And the New Testament is clear. Loving God starts with accepting Jesus as our King. That point is made throughout the New Testament, but we can see it clearly without even having to turn the page. Or at the most by turning one page, depending on your Bible. In the passage we looked at last week, Jesus sent out his disciples to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That good news centers on the fact that the king has come. Jesus is the king. Those who receive him and welcome him as their king enter into the kingdom. Now the part that relates to loving God is found in verse 16 of chapter 10. Jesus says to his disciples, He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If we reject the good news about Jesus, we reject Jesus. If we reject Jesus, we reject the one who sent him, God the Father. So the simple point is, loving God begins with accepting Jesus as our king. To put it negatively, we cannot love God without accepting Jesus. That is the necessary starting point. Then out of that willing submission to Jesus will flow praise to God, listening to God's word, obedience to God's commands, 
and love for our neighbor. I'm stressing this because some people make the mistake of thinking, if I love my neighbor, I'll get to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says. The kind of neighbor love that leads to eternal life is the kind that flows out of love for God. A love for God that begins with Jesus. When we have that kind of love for God, then we have eternal life. And when we have eternal life, it will be shown in love for our neighbor. Our love for God will be the spring that produces love for our neighbor. But some people make the opposite mistake to the one I've just mentioned. They think if I just love God, I'll get to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says either. Yes, love for God comes first. But if our lives show no evidence of love for others, what does that say about the reality of our love for God? Genuine love for God produces love for others too. Listen to what the Apostle John says. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And in fact, John goes even further. He says that loving involves more than just an absence of hatred. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In the rest of our passage, Jesus develops this truth. Genuine love for God will lead to love for our neighbor. And so in verses 29 to 37, Jesus sets out the call to costly mercy. In verse 29, the lawyer does what you and I tend to do when God's word challenges us. He tries to find a way around the challenge. Jesus has just publicly called this man's bluff. Great answer, sir. Your knowledge of what God wants is impeccable. Now do what he wants. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus has challenged this lawyer to love his neighbor as himself. And the man realizes the implications. The needs of his fellow human beings are overwhelming. Physical needs, financial needs, emotional needs, social and relational needs, spiritual needs. Where is he to start? If he starts, how is he ever going to stop? Beginning to love others as himself will open up floodgates of needs to be met. There'll be no time or energy left to love himself. And the lawyer is not ready for that. So he does what we're all tempted to do. He asks Jesus to set a limit on this command. Tell me, Jesus, who do I have to love and who do I not have to love? Who is my neighbor and who isn't? That's the sense of the word justify here. He wants to avoid obeying. Or he wants at least to limit the obedience that's required of him. And he wants Jesus to justify his lack of obedience, to give his approval. How many times have we all done that? 
We say, yes, your word is clear, Lord, but obeying it would be inconvenient for me. It would mess up my plans. It would change my lifestyle. Just give me something I'm comfortable with. We try to domesticate God's command, to tame it so that it makes little or no demands on us. We want to know the minimum obedience we can get away with. The lawyer has asked, who is my neighbor? Look at verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So what do we know about this individual lying on the Jericho road? What does Jesus tell us about his age, his nationality, social status, education level? What do we know about his personality, his theology, his worthiness? Is he a good person who deserves help? Or is he a nasty piece of work, lazy, unfaithful to his wife? The answer is Jesus tells us none of those things. All we know about this person is that he's in need. In fact, even if we'd been there and seen this man, we still wouldn't be any the wiser. He's been stripped of his clothes. So we would get no clues from how he was dressed. We don't know if he had money or not, because he certainly has none anymore. And he's half dead. So apparently he's barely conscious, if at all. We couldn't get any clues from his accent or his demeanor, his personality. Jesus has sealed the book on all those details. He's only given us one detail. This person is in need. So in the opening line of this story, Jesus has answered the lawyer's question. Who is your neighbor? The person in your pathway who's in need. That's your neighbor. That's the person you're to love as yourself. Jesus refuses to tame God's command. He will not put limits on the kind of person we're to love. Our neighbor is the person in our pathway who's in need. Whether or not they're our kind of person is irrelevant. Their worthiness or lack of worthiness is irrelevant. Our neighbor is a person in our pathway who's in need. Then having dealt with the lawyer's question in his very first line, Jesus goes on to tell a story about what it means to be a neighbor. The focus of the story is not on the person in need. It's on the people who meet him. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho had a reputation for being dangerous. Part of the road was called the Pass of Adamim. That roughly translates as the Pass of Blood. The road wind through mountains with plenty of caves along the way. There's part of the road as it looks today. It was a notorious hideout for bandits. Maybe the nearest equivalent in our part of the world would be a dark alley in the rough part of our town. The kind of place you get through as quickly as you can.
But having made the victim utterly anonymous, Jesus gives us the identity of three men who meet him. First, a priest. And if we were hearing this story for the first time, we would breathe a sigh of relief when the priest comes along. Someone's arrived. And not just anyone, a priest, a religious man, a man who serves God in the temple. But the priest looks at the man, then steps around him and hurries on. Then a Levite comes along, another religious man. The Levites were assistants to the priests. But again, the Levite walks around the half-dead man and carries on. Now there's no indication in the text that Jesus is reporting something that actually happened. In other words, he's making up a story to teach a lesson. It's a parable. So we have to ask, why does Jesus start with two religious men? It's a short story. We know that only three men come down the road. Why would he not spread the challenge a bit wider than just the religious folk? Jesus uses a priest and a Levite because it's the religious folk he wants to challenge. His target audience is the people who say they love God. The people who acknowledge the command to love their neighbors too. People like you and me. You and I could all sit comfortably if the first man down the road was a politician and the second man was a CEO of a big company. But we can't sit comfortably. Jesus is pointing at us. If we ask why the priest and the Levite pass by the half-dead man, surely the answer is simply an unwillingness to be inconvenienced. They know God's command, so that's not the problem. They know nothing about this half-dead man, so even if they have racial or cultural prejudices, those don't come into play here. They disobey simply because it's inconvenient to obey. It's not hard to think of reasons why it would be inconvenient. If the priest or Levite tried to help, and the man were to die in their care, they would become ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish law. They would be unclean through contact with a corpse. That was a significant inconvenience. They couldn't help with temple worship for seven days. And even if the man did not die in their care, there would be time and cost involved in helping him. And don't forget, their duties were important, serving in the temple. It's significant, though, that Jesus doesn't mention any excuses. All he tells us is that these two men did not help. And by walking by, they disobeyed God's command. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, there are no excuses for disobedience. And Jesus doesn't try to give any for these men. So if the religious people won't help, who will? Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. We've noticed in previous weeks that Jews and Samaritans tended to despise each other. They would avoid each other at all costs most of the time. Most of those listening to Jesus here would have been Jews. 
The very idea of a good Samaritan would have been a contradiction in terms to the Jews. As far as this story goes, the Samaritan is an outsider, a hated outsider. Why does Jesus make him the hero? Surely the Samaritan is here to rebuke those who are confident of their own righteousness. The priest and the Levite had great religious credentials, but they won't accept the inconvenience involved in loving this neighbor who's in their path. But this outsider comes along, this Samaritan, and he has compassion that leads him to action. That's what sets him apart from the priest and the Levite. Compassion that leads to action. It's possible the priest and the Levite looked at the man in the road and said, oh, the poor thing. And then passed him by. But that's not true compassion. True compassion leads to action. Verse 33 says, the Samaritan took pity on the half-dead man. The first time the word translated took pity appeared in Luke's gospel was back in chapter 7. It was used of Jesus' reaction when he saw the widow grieving at the funeral of her only son. And Jesus' compassion led him to raise the boy back to life. The only other time this word is used in Luke's gospel is in chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. It's used of the father who sees his broken son returning home. The father is filled with compassion for him. It's the same word. And his compassion leads him to abandon all his dignity and run to his son. And of course, the father in that story represents God the father. What's my point here? The point is the three times this word for compassion or pity is used in Luke's gospel. It's used once of God the Father, once of God the Son, and once of a Samaritan. This despised Samaritan reacts with godly compassion. That's a compassion that leads to action. We can define that action as mercy. If compassion is having genuine concern for someone in need, then mercy is concrete action to help that person, to meet their need, whatever it is. Look at the mercy that came from the Samaritan's compassion. Verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The Samaritan's compassion led him to personal involvement here and personal inconvenience. It cost him his plans for the day. Wherever he was headed to that day, he never showed up. It cost him in terms of getting his hands dirty, bandaging up wounds, pouring on oil and wine. It cost him the use of his own possessions. He had to walk while the half-dead man lay on the donkey. It cost him a night's sleep. The implication of the text is that he tended the man throughout the night. It cost him financially. 
The two silver coins would have covered maybe a week's room and board, maybe more than that. But in fact, his financial commitment goes much further. He makes an open-ended arrangement with the innkeeper. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now imagine the situation. Do you think this man is making himself vulnerable to being taken advantage of here? Certainly he is. And then finally, the Samaritan shows concern for the man's future progress. He doesn't just dump this guy in the inn, throw some money in the table and run off. He says to the innkeeper, when I return, I will reimburse you. He's prepared to put more time into this, more personal inconvenience. The Samaritan gives us a pretty full picture of what costly mercy looks like. It means paying a price in terms of our time and energy and financial resources. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And obeying that command will cost us. My problem is I fully support the idea of loving my neighbor. It's the inconvenience and the cost that stop me from actually loving my neighbor. I have great theoretical love for my neighbor, but it doesn't often result in much costly mercy. Some of you maybe see the same thing in your own lives. So then listen with me to Jesus' final words, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, how do we get this compassion that leads to costly deeds of mercy? Where is it going to come from? Well, one approach is to apply a heavy dose of guilt to ourselves. We can figuratively speaking, take out a stick and give ourselves a good beating. And maybe for a few days, we would manage a bit more costly mercy. But the effect would wear off pretty quickly. Most of us know that. We've tried it. In any case, guilt is a terrible way to motivate our behavior. It's a long way from true compassion. If we show mercy because we feel guilty, then we're only doing it to make ourselves feel better. There's nothing commendable or godly about deeds done with that kind of motivation. So how do we get true compassion in our hearts? Surely it comes from meditating on the ultimate example of costly mercy. We've said the Samaritan in this story was a hated outsider. And surely Jesus is the ultimate hated outsider. His home was heaven. We were his enemies, living in rebellion against him. But he came and traveled the Jericho road of this world, a place of blood and pain and injustice. He had every reason to leave us lying dead in our transgressions and sins. We weren't anonymous people to him. We were card-carrying enemies of God. Someone has pointed out that Jesus had every reason 
not to step around us as we lay on the road. He had every reason to step on us, to crush us. But he had compassion on us. Compassion that flowed over into costly mercy. He didn't just pick us up and bandage our wounds. He paid the ultimate cost when he showed us mercy. He took the wounds himself. Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus didn't pour out oil and wine to heal us. He poured out his own blood. He didn't pay for our healing with silver coins. He paid with his own life. If you and I are able to see ourselves as the needy person lying in the road, if we can grasp the costly mercy Jesus has shown to us, then surely we'll begin to have some of God's compassion in our hearts. Surely we'll begin to show costly mercy to the needy person in our pathway. Sometimes Christians draw a distinction between theological things and practical things. So here are the theological things we have to think about sometimes. But what we really need are the practical things, the useful things. But let me say politely, that kind of thinking is rubbish. It's nonsense. There is nothing more practical than good, heartfelt theology. Theology is the knowledge of God and his ways. When theology penetrates our heart, it changes our heart. It changes our actions too. The most practical Christians are Christians with hearts full of good theology. Theology that has worked its way down into their souls. Theology that tells them about God's costly mercy, his gracious ways with guilty sinners. Theology that says, amazing grace, how sweet the sign that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. If we want to be practical Christians, we have to fill our hearts with good theology. Good theology will move us to action, not out of guilt, but out of godly compassion. A pastor called Tim Keller has summed it up like this. I think it's worth reading the whole thing. A life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. Mercy is an overflowing generosity as a response to the mercy of God which we have received. Put another way, the ministry of mercy is a sacrifice of praise to God's grace. When theology gets into our hearts, it changes our hearts. It changes our actions. Well, finally, let's suppose we've got our theology down into our hearts. Where do we even start with this costly mercy? The whole world is like the Jericho Road. 
Everywhere we turn, there are needy people. Everywhere we look, there are people with physical and material needs, emotional and psychological needs, friendship needs, spiritual needs. How do we avoid just being paralyzed by the sheer amount of need? How do we avoid feeling like a nurse in one of those war zone hospitals, tripping over bleeding bodies everywhere we turn? Well, let me give you two very simple pointers as a way of beginning. First, begin with the needy person in your pathway. Ask yourself, who has God set right in front of me? I don't mean they're actually lying on the footpath. I mean your life has come into contact with their life. You'll know who it is because you're probably tempted to walk around that person. You're aware of their need, and you're aware that addressing their need will cost you. Begin with that person. Maybe they need friendship, someone to talk and pray with, maybe hospitality or a meal brought round to their house. Maybe they need a lift to church or to do their shopping. Maybe they need financial help or odd jobs done around their house. I doubt any of us will have to look too far to find the person God has put in our path. Maybe you'll trip over that person at the end of this service or this afternoon. That person in need is your neighbor. You are called to show them costly mercy. Mercy that's willing to accept inconvenience. Now, you may not be physically or financially able to meet their specific need all by yourself. But you can still take responsibility. You can call in an innkeeper if you have to. In other words, you can do the work to put them in the hands of someone who can help them, who can address their specific need, if that goes beyond your ability. At this point, many of us will say, okay, now can you narrow it down a bit? Maybe you still don't know where to begin. You still feel like a nurse in a war zone. Maybe the bodies in your path are piled up high in front of you. Then listen to Paul's words to the Galatians. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We're not only to show mercy to our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are no limits to the kind of person who can be our neighbor. But if we are overwhelmed by the needy people in our pathway, then we begin with the needy Christians in our pathway. That is the New Testament order of priority. You and I are not called to single-handedly solve the world's problems. We're not responsible for everybody that's lying in the Jericho Road. But we are to take responsibility for the person in our pathway, the person God has brought our life in contact with. We're not to step around that person. Showing mercy to the needy is part of the call of the kingdom. It's part of our praise to God for his mercy to us. And we will find the compassion we need 
when we turn our hearts to the costly mercy that God has shown us. We're going to do that together now as we sing the song Amazing Grace. Let's stand together.